Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. All right. Good afternoon, fam. Uh, Mom, Dad, it's good to have you guys here. Um, Good to be with you guys. Uh, We're working our way through the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Uh, And if you've been with us, you know that we've already made our way through the end of the first chapter. But now what we're going to do today is we're going to sort of zoom in on a portion we've already read. We're going to zoom in on the creation of mankind in chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Uh, There's a lot there about what it means to be human, about uh, what personhood is, and I think this is something that that we just really need to get. We really need to, to get this because your understanding of the creation of humanity, what it means to be human, what it means to have personhood will have massive consequences for how you understand who you are how you should relate to other people, and what it means to truly live in this world. And so um, I, I was reading recently from a Christian historian, Carl Truman, uh, and he talks about this in his book, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And what Truman says is that this division and this tension and this animosity that we sort of feel in the air in our culture, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, it's not, he says it's not so much a political division or a moral division like we assume it is. It's actually about competing views of reality. The problem is that people have different pictures of what's real and what's not. And that's why one side sees the other side as not just wrong, not just having a different opinion, but totally insane, right? And it flies both ways. The people on this side do it to that side. The people on this side do it to that side. It's because there's competing views of reality. And you can't move forward with purpose and vision and mission when nobody agrees on what is real. And so how we define what it means to be human is essential. It's of vital uh, importance. Let me pray for us, and then we'll start working through the text. All right? Uh, Father God, we... Uh, we confess that you and your name are great. Hallowed be your name as Jesus taught us to pray. And we thank you for this time to gather together as a church and study your word. I pray that you'd open the eyes of our hearts by the truth in these pages, that you would humble us before your glory, that you would mold our wills to conform to your truth, that we might experience the joys of just knowing you and making you known. Uh, and enjoying you. I love what Brian was saying earlier, Lord, and just how we want to be a people who we want to make much of you. We want to take you seriously, but we don't want to take ourselves too seriously. And so would you just rid from us uh, any sense of pretense or posturing uh, and just show us who you are and the beauty of what it means to know you. As in Christ's name we pray, 
Amen. Here's the main idea. I'll give it to you right on the front end. The main idea for this text is that God created us male and female in his own image to know him, love him, live with him, and glorify him. Our four points that we're going to work through, uh, I, I, it's, they're all Ps, so we got four Ps. Uh, it's our position as image bearers, our partnership as image bearers, our purpose as image bearers, and our problem as image bearers. And so let's look at that first one, our position as image bearers. What is the fact that this text says that we are made as humans in the image of God? What does that say about our position in creation? Look at verse 26 again. Uh, Genesis 1:26 says, says, then God said, let us make man in our image. By the way, the reason that that's plural there, our image, is because we're talking about the triune God who exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. And so God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. Now, I want you to consider that first word there. That first word there is what? Then. And that word then points us backwards to what's already been said, right? That's how the English language works. And so what has already been said? What's already been said is the creation of the universe as we know it. In the beginning, there was only God. That's what we see in the very first verses. There was only God. And then out of absolutely nothing, he creates everything with the sheer power of his voice. Just the volition of his will. And I want you to just picture the creation of all things. God takes this formless and empty void, and then he, he begins to form it day and night, light and darkness, sky and sea, earth and water. And then he takes what he's formed, and then he starts to fill it. He fills it with stars and comets and planets and fish and birds and the beasts of the land. And then you get to verse 26, where you see the pinnacle of his creation. The last thing that he creates in this account of Genesis 1 is mankind, humanity. If you look at the previous verses, you see that God produced all those living creatures according, it says, to their own kinds. He created the creatures according to their kinds. The livestock according to their kinds. The creatures that crawl were created according to their kinds. All wildlife, uh, all, all the other birds and, and animals of the sea were all created according to their kinds. But man, humanity is created in the image of God. And so that should be jarring to us. Everything else is created according to their kinds, but man is made in the image of God. That verse should slap us across the face. What does that mean? Don't miss the significance of this. It's so significant that this doctrine has been known for centuries as the Imago Dei. They gave it a Latin phrase. Imago Dei simply means image of God. When I got married, I made sure that uh, Alyssa knew we are not getting any animals, right? 
We're not going to be an animal home. She's like, hey, let's get, a, let's get a pet. And I say, no, no pets, right? We're not going to be that home. I grew up with dogs, but for some reason now I'm allergic to them. And so uh, I'm like, no, no pets. Um, definitely not a cat person, right? right? If you're not a dog person, you're probably not definitely a cat person. I mean, if, if dogs are like man's best friend, then cats are like man's reclusive roommate. That's always judging you for some reason, even though they're the ones that like poop in a box, Right? And so Lizzie would say, like, hey, let's, let, let's get a pet. And I'd just say, no, no pets. Instead, we had humans, right? They're better. We have three humans now. We've got three kids. And then my kids wanted a pet. And they said, hey, let's get a pet. So now we have a dog. We have a dog. His name is Archie. He's hypoallergenic. He's standard size golden doodle. Like, so he's the size of, like, this small, goofy, lanky horse, and uh, I, I, I've, I've, I've come, he's grown on me. I've, I've trained him, I take him on walks. Uh, I watch like one episode of Dog Whisperer, so I make sure, like I do all the things to make sure that he knows like I'm the alpha, that I'm the pack leader, right? Uh, and he respects that. Love this dog, right? He respects that. I, lo- I love him, he's great. And uh, as some of you know, we also got a frog at Christmas time, right? Uh, a lot of people know that I hate frogs. I think they're disgusting, they're gross, they're slimy, and they jump at you, right? I don't mind things that jump. I don't mind things that are gross and slimy, but things that are gross and slimy and jump, no thank you, right? I don't do that. And a group of you pranked me on our last Christmas party. I don't know why you're laughing, right? But um, a group of you pranked me by rigging the gift exchange uh, so that I ended up with this frog. I'll have you know I'm taking care of that thing. I'm taking good care of that thing. I still won't touch it. I refuse to touch it. I've had it for like, what, six months now, and I still will not touch this frog. But once it came home with us, I just felt responsible to care for it. And so I feed it all the crickets and worms and fish that it needs. I clean the terrarium on a regular basis. I'm buying like new dirt and rocks for it, right? It's got like plants in there and stuff. It's living large. I'm like harboring my sworn enemy. That's what it feels like. But this frog, too, has grown on me. Gave it a sophisticated name, Froggy. Um, but look, as awesome as pets can be, you can teach your dog tricks, you can teach him, you can even teach him to hunt, right? I got to hang out in Alaska a couple weeks ago with a hunting dog, it was awesome. And as awesome as pets can be, they're, they're just animals. They're just animals. And look, I know that's going to make some of you mad because you buy like, shoes for your dogs and your cats and stuff like that, but you need to know your dog doesn't need shoes, right? It's got built-in padding for there. Your dog does not need shoes. They're not humans, all right? There's something distinctively special about humans that sets them apart from the rest of creation. You can't deny it. No matter how much you're an animal lover, no matter how much you're a pet person, there's something distinctively unique and special about human beings that sets them far apart from the rest of creation. Every other creature was created according to their kind, but humans are created in the image of God. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean to be created in the image of God? First, when we talk about the image of God, what we're not talking about is God's like physical image and form. All right? And we know that because the Bible says that God does not possess a physical body since God is spirit. That's in John 4, or 1 John 4, rather. What we're talking about are the aspects of human nature that set us above and beyond the animal world, the things that have to do with our capacity 
to think about God, to know God, and to live in ways that are pleasing to him, our capacity for that that all human beings have, to be drawn into a relationship with him, to be changed from the inside out, to look like Christ in our character, to live for the glory of God and the good of our neighbors. Our capacity for those things has to do with the image of God. The image of God also has to do with our ability to just to reason, to create like an art, to philosophize, to be self-aware and ponder the big questions of life. We're the only species who, who really has just these longings for meaning and purpose and righteousness. The 17th century preacher poet John Donne once wrote about how the difference between the reason of man and the instinct of the beast is that the beast just knows, but the man, he says, knows that he knows. And so when we talk about God image, God's image, we're talking about this, our capacity for these things. But more importantly, it has to do with our spiritual capacity. You see, only human beings have an appetite for worship. All humans, regardless of creed, regardless of background, regardless of where or when you were born, have an appetite for the sacred. That's why every generation of our species, no matter where we are, we find something or someone to worship, to long for eternity. King Solomon from the Bible wrote that God has put eternity into the hearts of mankind. You see, only mankind is aware of a world, of a reality, of a kingdom that goes beyond what we can see, hear, and touch. Only mankind has this longing for eternity with a, a longing to know the God of eternity, to love him, to dwell with him, to bring glory to him. Only human beings have this, this ache, this God-sized hole in their heart in that way. You know what else the image of God, the Imago Dei, says about us? It, it, it says something about our worth as human beings. If all people are made in the image of God, then that means that no matter who you are, and no matter where you came from, it doesn't matter your age or your life experience, it doesn't matter what job you have, it doesn't matter the color of your skin, doesn't matter what mistakes you've made or how low you've fallen. It doesn't matter what that, that person thinks or what that group over there thinks. Every human being is made in the image of God, and therefore, every human being is worthy of great honor and dignity and value and respect. Here's what the French reformer John Calvin said. He said, we are not to reflect on the wickedness of men, but to look to the image of God in them. An image which, covering and obliterating their faults, an image which, by its beauty and dignity, should allure us to love and embrace them. Listen, the most fundamental part of your human identity is this, that you were made in the image of God. Listen, we have a spiritual adversary in a secular culture that is trying to convince us otherwise, that who we are is 
not rooted in the image of God, but that who we are is rooted in what we do, our activity. Or it's rooted in what we desire, our, our, our appetites. But neither our activity nor our appetites can really be the essence of who we are. I mean, a primary way that we try to find our identity in, like, in what we do in our activity is, is through our work, our vocation. We use our gifts and our talents, the ways that God has wired us and made us to, and we use these things to make a name for ourselves instead of God. That was the problem at the Tower of Babel. And when we do that, we look at our work to, to do something that it was never designed to do. We look to our work to give us meaning and purpose and value. And it never seems to be enough. Because see, when, when work becomes your fundamental identity, you'll start to look down on others who have jobs and vocations that you consider less honorable and less worthy. Or you'll, you'll start to feel a sense of, of hubris and pride that will lead to your inevitable humbling. On the other side, a primary way that we're told to find our identity and what we desire and our appetites has a lot to do these days with our sexuality. And look, our, our culture accepts all sorts of unnatural sexualities because they're saying, the culture says, hey, what you desire is essential to who you are. It's essential. And that's why we've started to hear things just in the last 10 years like, hey, if you don't accept my sexual preference, if you don't accept my gender preference, then you don't accept me as a person. And that's why you have Christians that go like, what do you mean? No, like I, I, I do accept you as a person. I'm not rejecting you. I love you. I want to get to know you. I, I don't agree with these life choices. I, I want to help, like, understand that. Like, I want to develop this relationship. And, and, and that's why we're met with, like, no, hey, if you don't accept these things that I desire as a core part of an essential to who I am, then you're rejecting me. Because to them, to be a person is to be sexual. And look, man... Being sexual is part of God's design. Sex is a gift from God. It's a beautiful gift. It's a wonderful gift. It's a fun gift. But it's still a gift. And it's not essential to who we are. It's not fundamental to who we are. It's just a part. It's one part to what it means to be made in the image of God. And because we're tempted to be workaholics because our culture is increasingly sexualized, because our views on reality and race and politics are driving wedges between the people of God. This is why the doctrine of Imago Dei, the image of God, is so important. And so let's not be a people who, who, who allow ourselves to be pulled by the left or by the right and let them define our views of reality. Don't let that happen. Your fundamental identifying quality is as an image of God, which is true of all humans, and as a child of the king for those who are in Christ. Number two, I want us to talk about our partnership as image bearers. 
Our partnership is image bearers. Look at the next verse, verse 27 says, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God, and he created them male and female. Now, if you didn't pick up on this already, when in, in verse 27, when it says God created man, that's using man as the plural for mankind, men and women, right? And so it's, he created man in his own image. He created them male and female. Now, after God, after it says that God made man in his image, I want you to see the significant enhancement made at the, the end of verse 27. It says, he created a male and female. Now, that, that clause, that statement does two things for us. One, it establishes the essential equality between men and women. Right? It's not just males who are made in the image of God, but, but, but women too. And there's been this, this pattern just in recent history where, where some people like to blame the Bible for repressing women. But historically, it's actually the opposite. Historically, it's had the opposite effect. The scriptures have had the opposite effect. Like when Moses said, when he wrote this, and said, God created male and female in his image and likeness, you could not think of a more countercultural social statement than that in, in thousands of years BC when he was writing this. Moses is saying, look, men and women are both made in the image of God. And that would be blasphemous to so many people, so many of the pagan cultures and religions of that time. But Moses says, no, both male and female are created in the image of God. And so both are equal in dignity and value and are worth of respect and honor. But not only does that statement that he created the male and female establish the, the, the equality of men and women, but it also declares their, their, their distinctiveness from one another. You see, when, when, when gender, when sexuality is properly understood, when it is biblically understood and lived out, what we see is that men and women were created equal in value, dignity, and honor, but they were meant to complement one another in a beautiful way, not compete with one another. And we see that sexuality is not an accident of nature, but it's a wonderful gift from God. And let's be clear, the Bible's teaching here is a direct contrast to the spirit of this age. Because as we've mentioned, this age says gender isn't real. This age says that gender is a social construct. But gender is not a social construct. It is not a personal choice. It is a gift. It's a beautiful gift created by God with intentionality and with purpose. And it doesn't mean that, that we get to look down on people who don't see that. It doesn't mean we get to, to treat them as, as though they're subhuman. Because again, all people are created in the image of God and worthy of dignity and respect and honor. And so what it means is that we invite people in to see the beauty of our complementary differences. And so if you're a male, your maleness is a part of your God-given design. It is a gift to be used for his glory. 
And if you're a female, your femaleness is a part of your God-given design and being, a gift to be used for his glory. You see, the beauty of God's creative and order and intention is not found in blurring distinctions, but in clarifying them. I mean, we saw that in the first few verses of Genesis. God clarifies, and he makes out of distinctives, distinctions, he makes order and beauty out of, from the chaos. He says, the sky is not the sea. The heavens are not the earth. The beasts are not the image bearers of God. Humans are. Males are not females, and females are not males. And notice, too, that the distinction here of male and female, it seems almost like important and key to understanding the image of God. Because God made the fish, the birds, and the wildlife, like we saw that in the previous verses. He made all of those in two sexes as well, but it's only mankind that gets described as male and female. Only with mankind is that distinction highlighted. When you get a group of young kids together, and you ask them, hey, who's better, boys or girls, right? The boys are going to say, boys, girls have cooties, right? And girls are going to say, girls, boys are mean. Not, not long ago, I sat my kids down. We talked to them about this, about how, how boys are, are the best at being boys. Boys are the best at being boys. And girls are the best at being girls, equal in value, but different in roles. In a beautiful way, we're meant to complement one another with this diversity. And it's beautiful and very good because God made it that way and, and, and said so. And there's a lot more we can say on this, but we're going to save that for later on in Genesis 2 where, where we really get into uh, gender, gender roles and distinctions, um, where the creation story is sort of retold, but instead of the crescendo landing on mankind as male and female, it lands on mankind as husband and wife. And so we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about that in Genesis 2 and do a deeper dive. But I want you to know this. I want you to know that the image of God and his glory is on display, not just from us being mere humans, but from us being humans that are male and female together. Number three, I want you to see our purpose as image bearers of God. Our purpose as image bearers of God. In Genesis 1, verse 28, it says, God blessed them. He blessed man and woman and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. As Mark mentioned earlier, theologians have called this the cultural mandate. In other words, this verse sort of uh, encapsulates what, what humanity was put on this earth to do. And so I want you to consider what this means. Like what does it mean to be in the image of something? It means that you are a reflection and a representation of what you are an image of. 
And so if we sat down and you sat across from me and I had like a pad and paper and I was like looking at you and you know, looking down and, and, and doing that for like a little while and then I put the piece in front of you and I say, hey, look, I drew, I drew a picture of you. The question you would be asking as you look at this picture is, man, how is he so good at that? But the second question you would ask is, is this a good reflection of me? Does this look like me? Is this a good reflection of what I look like? And if it is, then anyone who wants to know what you look like, even years from now, can go to that drawing, and in some sense, it'll represent you to them. What verse 26 and 28 is saying here is that it's something kind of like that. Is that God is saying, hey, look, if you reflect my glory, if you reflect my character, by the way that you work in the world, by the way that you steward your resources and creation, if you reflect my glory and my character and represent me to the world around you, then life will flourish around you. You'll, you'll be living as I made you to, to be, as I created you to be. Look, the original readers of Genesis, they understood this because this concept, because you, you had these pharaohs and these emperors back then that, uh, that considered themselves gods. And see, it wasn't until Moses wrote Genesis that any religion or belief like thought that regular people could be the image of God. No, all the other cultures taught that, no, the one guy at the top of the pyramid, like that guy is the image of God. And so you had these emperors and pharaohs that were calling just themselves the image of God. And they would set up these statues and these relics to serve as images of God images of them to represent their authority and represent their power all around the empire. And so here we are in Genesis 1, right out the gate, and Moses is going swinging against those false mythologies. He says, no, there's not many gods. There's one God, the uncreated one. And he says, all humans bear his image, not just Pharaoh, not just the emperor, but every human being. And so as image bearers who are meant to reflect and represent God, that tells us that we are spiritually dependent. We were made to be spiritually dependent on him. We, remain, we were made to find true purpose and meaning and fulfillment and flourishing in life in, in him. We don't have our own glory apart from God. We are like mirrors. Mirrors can't make light. Mirrors can't create images. But they can reflect light. They can represent an image to you. They can lighten the world around them if they happen to be facing the light. And in the same way, if we want our families and our communities and our workplaces and the world around us to truly flourish, then we must be facing the light. 
We must know God. We must delight in God. We must see him. We must savor him. We must know him if we want to make him known. We must be changed by the Spirit if we want the Spirit to change those around us through us. And so this leads to a problem that we have. This is our last and final point, is our problem as image bearers. There's a problem with the image of God in mankind. And that problem is that it has been stained and shattered, broken. Why? How did that happen? Because of sin in the world. In Genesis 3, after the first male and female, after our first parents broke God's covenant, as a result, mankind, although we still bear the image of God, we are broken images of him. Just because all people are fallen sinners doesn't mean that we don't bear God's image. We still do in terms of our value that we hold and our dignity that we hold. This is why every slave trade that was abolished was abolished on the grounds of the doctrine of Imago Dei. And this is why God also forbids the taking of a human life is because of our dignity and honor that all people have. Henry Blocher, a French theologian, he, he writes this. He says, we must state both that after his revolt, mankind remains mankind, and also that mankind has radically changed, that he is but a grisly shadow of himself. Mankind remains the image of God, unviolable and responsible, but has become a contradictory image. One might say a caricature, a witness against himself. See, what we lose through our sin is our righteousness. What we lose is what we were made for. We lose our, our holiness. And we are now guilty before God, alienated from him, corrupt in our thinking and in our desires. And so our problem that needs to be solved is that we, we, we need something to fix that broken image in us. What we need is to be restored, made new. By the way, I want to draw really quick your attention to something beautiful hidden in this text. The verse says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And so that kind of has begged the question for a lot of people. Does this mean that we are only bringing glory to God as his image bearers if we get married and have children? The answer is no. How do we know that? Well, first and foremost, Jesus, who's considered the perfect image of God, was not married, nor did he have biological children. We also know that because being fruitful and multiplying in Genesis, that command, that mandate continues its fulfillment 
in the Abrahamic covenant, which we'll see in Genesis 12, where God made a promise to Abraham that, that his descendants would bless the nations. And how was that promise fulfilled? That promise was fulfilled thousands of years later through Jesus Christ, the descendant of Abraham, who brings back the kingdom of God through his life, death, and resurrection. And Jesus gave us his great commission to make disciples. He said that the kingdom of God and the people of God is no longer going to be about a nation or a tribe, but it's going to be about a new birth, a spiritual reality. And so when you and I, men, women, single, married, old, young, when we pray for others and share the gospel, and make disciples, we are living out the cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with the glory of God. Now, Colossians 1, 15 says that he, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. We need something or someone to restore what is broken in us. We need to know what is going to draw us back so that instead of finding and seeking our identity or image on what we do, what we desire, how we look, or what people think about us, instead of looking to creation to restore us, we look to the creator who not only made us in Genesis 1, but remakes us in John 3. He makes us born again. And if you come to Christ through the good news of what he has done for your salvation, that will change you. That will transform you from the inside out more and more into his likeness, into the image of the invisible God, and you will reflect his glory. In other words, if you gaze at the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, who is the only perfect image of God, then the image of God in you will be restored. How does he do that? You see, Jesus was made, he was made low and made poor. He was made homeless and then unjustly dragged to a cross where he would suffer in our place and for our sins. And when you look As the king on the cross, you really start to see the glory of God. You almost see the glory of God most clearly when you look at Jesus on the cross. Because the cross shows us that God is so holy that an atoning sacrifice had to die for me. But we also see a love so big and so divine that God was glad to offer up his son for me. I need to, I think I've shared this once before. Um, but you need to understand that the value and the dignity that every human being has is a reason that we should protect 
and fight for every human being to be honored and dignified and not vilified and not destroyed. Christians, more than anyone, should be defending and protecting the vulnerable and the broken, the most marginalized, the most taken advantage of. And it's for these reasons and more that the general consensus of the Christian position on life in the womb has been that it's worth protecting. And if you didn't know, the, the murder of an unborn child and the sin of abortion is, is a sin that I participated in. And I am so humbled and so grateful to be, one, part of a church family um, that, when many of you heard that for the first time, um, made this a safe and loving and caring community uh, for someone like me uh, to not only lead, but just be a part of. But more than that, I'm just blown away by the grace of our God. That in all the ways that we have lived out the broken, shattered versions of the image of God that we are, there's grace to be restored. There's hope for healing. There's mercy in the cross. Nothing you could have ever done Nothing you'll ever do can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. If you would just come to him. You see, God created us in his own image. We belonged to him as his creatures, as his image bearers. We belonged to him to mirror him. But then we were broken and lost in sin. But his love for humanity was so great and so powerful and so willing and unstoppable that he sent his own son so that we could be forever his. We were made once for him at creation and then remade for him forever by the cross and resurrection. You should marvel you should absolutely marvel at the goodness of God in creation, but you should marvel more at the grace of God and the cross of Jesus Christ. And those of us who are made in Christ, born again in him, have the joy of reflecting his image more clearly by knowing God, loving him, dwelling with him, and living joyfully for his glory and for the good of others. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. 
If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.